This morning, as Danny read for us, we are going to be in Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 22. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Father, we thank you for your grace and your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you this morning, particularly for Mark. Uh, we thank you for uh, you, by your spirit, compelling him to write, by uh, Peter and his life with Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would give us clarity and wisdom this morning from this passage. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to apply this to our hearts. I pray, you, Lord, that you would help uh, by your spirit for us not to just hear words this morning, uh, but to be changed and transformed. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust and depend on you in doing that. I pray you would give grace and compassion as we seek you to do that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we are working our way through the book of Mark, I want to remind you where we've come. We've had a few weeks off from that uh, for various reasons. But as we're looking at the book of Mark, remember, this is an urgent call of the gospel of Christ. Mark is writing to remind us of the urgency that Christ has come. The kingdom is here. And Jesus went on preaching, as it summarizes in the beginning of Mark, repent and believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the book goes on to proclaim that, to declare that, that there is a gospel that has come. There's good news. There's a declaration of good news, that something new has come. And we know that is the coming of the Messiah. Uh, the Jews at the time, uh, some being the disciples and others that would follow Jesus, are following Christ, following after Christ. Remember, we read about John the Baptist, who's preparing the way for Christ. Uh, but like in all times, there are many in all kinds of different religious divides and religious groups with various issues, various purposes, various questions. And as we read the book of Mark, we'll continually be introduced to a few groups, the scribes uh, being those who study the law and write the law, and the Pharisees, those who are a particular sect that means the holy ones or the separate ones uh, that have kind of separated themselves. It's a sect of Judaism at the time and religious leaders at the time were majority uh, Pharisees. And then there's Sadducees, and we'll see those at times in Mark. And then this morning, we see the disciples of John, uh, those who were following after John. Remember, John came right before Christ. So if you can imagine yourself during that time, like now, you know, you probably live as a Christian, and, and maybe some of you understand the differences between like Baptists, Presbyterians, you know, what's the difference between these different groups? Why do they call themselves different names? What are they defining? Uh, and these groups at the time existed with 
the same idea, well, not the same idea as Baptists and Presbyterians, but uh, the same kind of clarifying division of who they are, trying to make a point of how they follow after God. And so in this particular section, we see the Pharisees, and then we see the disciples of John. They're, they're clarifying themselves as those. And they have a question for Christ, the question which you've heard now twice, if you, if you haven't been reading the book of Mark. Uh, if you've been reading the book of Mark, you've heard it more than that as you're reading. But the question is, why aren't Jesus and his disciples fasting? Why don't they fast? Why is it that John's disciples and the Pharisees fast and Jesus' disciples aren't? And so we know from that, John's disciples are fasting. Uh, if you, biblically, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that the Pharisees fasted. And the Pharisees actually fasted frequently. Uh, you can look at your handout and you can see in Luke 18, 11 and 12, the prayer of the Pharisee. It says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, thus prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. For the Pharisees, tithing and fasting was one, two of the major pillars of their uh, faith. They saw themselves as those who are separate, removed. And we saw that last time we were in, in, uh, in Mark, remember? The Pharisees saw themselves as completely removed from society, as holy and identified differently. And part of that was their practice of fasting. If you remember from the previous section, Jesus is eating with Levi and his friends who are filthy friends uh, for the Pharisees. They're sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees felt like, how could you even get close to them? How could you even spend time with them? Because the Pharisees viewed themselves as very separate. And a lot of that is built on the idea uh, of fasting. The Pharisees would fast twice a week. Most historical sources say they would do Mondays and Thursdays. And there's lots of historical interesting things about that. One being that that was the market day of, Jew, of the Jews. So people would be coming into town to buy their goods for the week on Mondays and Thursdays. The Pharisees would make a huge spectacle of their fasting. Uh, a Jewish fast or the, the Pharisaical fast would start when the sun rises and it would end when the sun goes down. It's not a very long fast, but they would put ash on their face, white on their face, make their eyes look gaunt. They would wear disheveled clothes that day. They would try to make it very apparent, very clear. We are holy and we are fasting. And so the Pharisees fast was a frequent fast. Uh, by this time in, in Judaism, it had taken over a lot of the Jewish faith. Uh, that the expectation was the Pharisees were very holy. Why? Because they fast. As we looked at previously, because they tithe down to their spice rack. And so these Pharisees are looked as the holy people of Israel, and they're fasting twice a week. But Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. So they're saying, wait, hold on, Jesus. The holiest people of Israel are fasting twice a week, and your disciples don't even fast. What's going on here? With this, you also have the disciples of John. And so the question being asked by people, and we see in other Gospels, these are asked by John's disciples directly. Here, it's them kind of coming together. The disciples of John are fasting also. 
And it's not hidden news that John was the forerunner of Christ. Remember, John declares to his disciples, he is greater, I am less than. I'm not worthy to unstrap his sandals. He refuses to baptize. He calls out, there is the Lamb of God. So it's clear that John is attached to Christ. And so John's disciples are fasting also. Maybe John's disciples are fasting twice a week like the Pharisee, just in practice of Judaism. It's possible that John's disciples are fasting now particularly because at this point, John is in prison. He's not dead yet, but he will be soon, and he's in prison, so it's possible they're fasting for that reason. But it comes down to there's expectation that Jesus' disciples should be fasting. That's, That's what's holy. That's what's right. But they're not. And so people are looking, comparing Christ to these religious leaders at the time, saying, if they are holy and righteous, why are you not fasting? Why are you not participating in this? So that that brings lots of questions, right, about fasting. And it's interesting to see that biblically, there is only one day of commanded fasting in the Old Testament. And there is no command to fast in the New Testament. As you look at your Bible, there is one day of Old Testament fasting commanded. It is the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is what is commonly called now. Uh, The Day of Atonement was a day where all of Israel would recognize their sin before God, their need to be saved, that sin would be paid for. uh, And that day was spent fasting. That day still is spent fasting uh, by the Jews. But it's the only commanded fast. And so where do the Pharisees come up with this idea of fasting? They are practicing a kind of religious asceticism or a religious suffering to the body to make them look holy or to have a feeling of holiness. This is a kind of suffering that they're going to bring on themselves for their own holiness before God. The Pharisees have created this whole system of fasting and the consistent regular fasting of twice a week and the ritual of taking on that. And they've convinced all Israel that this is what holy people do. But biblically, they have no command for this. Fasting was not a commanded regular part of Jewish life, nor is fasting a commanded regular part of Christian life. There's one commandment for fasting the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. And so these Jews are taking man's laws and they are making them God's laws. They're looking at the acts of the Pharisees and the current acts of John's disciples who are either following the Pharisees or fasting because John's in prison. And they're saying, these are the holiest people we know. How come Jesus' people aren't doing this? And note that timing-wise, in all of the Gospels, this comes immediately after the feast with Levi. So thinking about what's going on, you have the Pharisees who are fasting twice a week. You have John's disciples who are either mimicking that or they're fasting because John's in prison. And then you have Jesus doing what? Feasting with a bunch of sinners, going to the house of Levi. And so in their mind, this looks like there's a major problem here. This is what holy people do, and now this man's come, and he's teaching, and remember, he has declared that he has the right to forgive sins. We looked early in chapter 2, as he says, 
your sins are forgiven to the paralytic. And so he declares he has the authority to forgive sins. He embraces sinners. He brings them in. And now the righteous people around us, they practice this great holy act of fasting. And and he's feasting with a bunch of sinners? Who does this Jesus think he is? And so while you might have questions also about fasting and what was going on, hopefully we kind of address those. Why did the Pharisees fast? Why, did John, why possibly were John's disciples fasting? And then Jesus answers the question, why is he not fasting? Why are the disciples of Jesus not fasting? The fasting of John's disciples, again, possibly because of John's imprisonment, possibly just as a practice in Israel at the time of holiness, the Pharisees fasting twice a week, primarily to be seen by men, to make themselves feel as though they are holy before God, to look out at the world and go, they are not like us. And Jesus' disciples, no fasting is going on. Verse 19, Jesus answers and tells them why. Why is it that they are all fasting and your disciples are not? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. So Jesus answers their question. They're fasting, but why are my disciples not fasting? Because the bridegroom is with them. And we we might hear this and go, (laughs) don't understand. I mean, you understand what a bridegroom is probably, right? Uh, And you understand that it would be inappropriate to fast at a wedding. I don't care what kind of diet plan you're on, how bad you want to be buff or skinny or whatever you want to be. You show up to someone's wedding and you're like, I know you paid $15 a plate for me to be here, but I'm not really eating today. Sorry. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. No, to come and be all, oh, we're so sad, and we're, we're the Pharisees, and we're gaunt faces, and bad clothes, and disheveled. You're inappropriate for what is going on, right? And the Jews actually recognized this. If a wedding fell on a Monday or Thursday, the Pharisees didn't fast. Because it would be inappropriate to be at that wedding fasting, making a sorrowful spectacle at a day that's supposed to be celebration, And so Jesus gives a clear illustration to them that should clarify for them exactly what he means by it, uh, though it might be a little bit lost on us. A fast is not required, even in their own law, turning it back on them at a wedding. Why? Because a wedding is a time to rejoice, not a time to fast. A wedding is a time to celebrate. A wedding is a time for extravagance. A wedding is the time you walk around and go, how much did all this cost? Was this worth it? What are we doing? Because it's extravagant. It's not every day. It's a big thing. It's a big deal. It's a time for joy, a time for celebration. And Jesus says, his disciples aren't fasting. Why? Because the bridegroom is here. It's the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is compared to a bridegroom. That he's compared to what we see throughout the New Testament that Jesus is the husband of the church. It's an Old Testament illustration that God says he would be their husband, that he would care for the people of Israel. But it's the first time in Mark's gospel we see Jesus says he is the bridegroom. He is the husband of the church. This is the wedding ceremony, per se, here. That this is a time for celebration. His disciples are not in sorrow. 
They're rejoicing because Jesus is with them. And his illustration has one strange thing in it. Look with me at verse 19. As he says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and in that day they will fast. What's interesting here is bridegrooms aren't taken away. Bridegrooms leave with the bride. Bridegrooms are brought together to the bride, and they leave, and they're sent off in celebration. But what is stated here is that this bridegroom is going to be taken away, and the verb would be violently taken away. That he's going to be removed from them. This is really, in in Mark's gospel, the first time Jesus is making any kind of statement about the cross and about what would come. He's saying that the bridegroom is going to be snatched away, taken away, violently removed from them. And in that day, they will fast. Why would they fast in that day? It's a day of sorrow. This is not rejoicing, right? As Christ is taken to the cross, the disciples don't go, well, where are we going to eat? Let's go get something. Let's go celebrate. Let's go rejoice. They're in sorrow. They're longing for Christ. They're in confusion. They don't know what to do. They need direction. It's very likely uh, that this is not just stating about the future coming, but the very disciples. What are they going to do when Christ is gone? They're probably going to pray and fast. They're probably going to be confused for a while. You've probably had things happen in your life that are so gut-wrenching, the last thing you want to do is fill your gut. You don't even know what to do. And so Jesus makes a statement. Now his disciples rejoice. Now fasting would be inappropriate. Fasting does not fit in the presence of Christ. There is no fasting in the presence of Christ. But one day... When Christ is taken, then sorrow and fasting would be appropriate. It's interesting, as you look at the Bible and you see the only day commanded of fasting is the Day of Atonement. No New Testament command, no other Old Testament command for fasting. But that does not mean that's the only fasting we see going on. As Danny said, when Jesus speaks about the hypocrisy of the fasting Pharisees, he doesn't state they are hypocrites because they fast. He says, when you fast, do not fast like them. And so there are fasts that the people of God participate in, Old Testament and New Testament, Israel and the church. And we see those examples throughout Scripture. I put them in the bottom of your handout. It says examples of situational fasting. What we see throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament is there is times where God's people are compelled to fast. And you might ask, for what reason, right? Well, let's look at the only commanded fast of Scripture, the Day of Atonement. Why would God command His people to fast on the Day of Atonement? Because fasting is going to clarify for them. What does fasting do? It removes what you daily believe you are sustained by, food, and it causes you to focus on the one who sustains you. There is an intention behind it. He says, on the Day of Atonement, they are, in Leviticus, the actual uh, phrase that is used is is that they would be uh, suffering or anguished or 
that they would have pain, and it's translated as an understanding of fasting. Leviticus 16, I don't have it memorized, 16.29. Leviticus 16.29 is the only commanded fast that they would focus, they would have clarity, they would understand what's going on. They would be thinking about their atonement and their sin before God. They would remove the distraction of food and they would have the clarity of hunger and a desire and reminder because people throughout history, you're not eating multiple times a day always in America because you're hungry, but you have a pattern of eating, right? Some of us, it's a bigger pattern. You walk into the kitchen, that's the pattern, and you open the fridge, and then you go, what am I doing here? Why have I done this? I don't need food. But it's just the pattern. And on a day of fasting, you might be reminded 15, 16 times a day every time you walk in the kitchen and go, I'm not sustained by this. I'm sustained by Christ. But I so quickly turn to food. Why? Because it continues my life, it's necessary, it's needy, it's joyful, it tastes great. We, most, lots of it, not all of it. We love it. But on that day, they would be reminded, my biggest issue is not my hunger pains. It's my sin before God. And the atonement has taken care of that. So the one commanded fast is to be a reminder to God's people of what sustains them, what keeps them, where their hope is, upon what are they dependent. Not food, but the God who made all things. And in the New Testament, we see the practices of fasting remain the same. If you look in the book of Acts, the New Testament examples, we have the churches of Antioch fasting when? they are going to send out Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. And in preparing to do so, it's as they were praying and fasting. They took time to pray, and they tried to focus their prayer, or to clarify their prayer, reminding that they were dependent upon God for this decision. Does that mean they're not dependent upon every other decision? No, but it means they see something as a heightened need, and they say, we're going to fast for this. We're going to remind ourselves upon whom we are dependent by removing from ourselves food. By having clarity to say, it's God who we need right now. It is God's direction. It's God's decision. So we see situational fasting going on at times of need of clarity. When people are seeing and saying, I need to really focus here. I, really, I, I need to petition God in a way that is clear and more clear than just regular prayer. You can look at Old Testament examples. This is often happening in national disaster uh, when Israel is in the middle of chaos. Uh, This is when David loses his child or is going to lose the child and he's praying and he's fasting, waiting for that to come. It's interesting that as soon as the child is dead, David stops fasting. And they say, well, you mourned for him and you were praying and fasting for him while he was here and now he's dead and you stop. And David says, because he is gone. He's with God. And so David recognizes the fast had an intention or a purpose in his petition before God and is pleading with God. And then as soon as the child dies, David is settled in God's decision. And so it would be appropriate for us to participate in fasting uh, in times where we see a heightened need for prayer. Maybe there's things in your life you want clarity in. You, you want to be reminded you're dependent upon God for this. Uh, it feels in- incredibly pressing on your heart at that time. There is something that you are looking at, waiting for. And you know these things come in your life 
where you should be every day fully dependent upon God, and you are, whether you recognize it or not, but there come things in your life where you say, we really need clarity here. We, we really need to focus on that God will guide us in this decision. And the New Testament practice and the Old Testament practice seems at those times when things are sorrowful, fasting is appropriate to plead with God. When you're preparing to do something that is important and, and gut-wrenching, like sending out Paul and Barnabas from a church, it is a time where it's appropriate to fast and to be reminded that you're dependent upon God. So the current joy of the disciples is that Christ is with them, and the future fast would be one that's not commanded, but is intentional and purposeful. That fasting is to remind them of their dependence upon God. It would be what, I, what I've just called situational fasting. Now, does that mean you can't fast at other times? Well, you, can, you can fast anytime you want. You fast too long, you're going to die, just for clarity, right? You can't fast forever. But you can fast. There, there's nothing here about when you're allowed to or not. You have freedom in fasting. And, and you have freedom to use fasting in an appropriate way in prayer and petition before God and to drive yourself to clarity of your dependence upon God. But there is no New Testament commandment, and there is only one Old Testament commandment for fasting. But Jesus rebukes strongly the fast of the Pharisees. So if we are going to fast, what should it look like? Right, And when we fast, then, what should it be? And Danny alluded to us in Matthew 6, says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There are other examples of fasting that aren't necessarily in secret. Uh, in Acts, right, it's not secret that the church is fasting because it's recorded for us, uh, but it is not a public display in that they're trying to impress people. And so a modern version of this would be, if you're fasting, don't get on your Instagram and just be like, oh, guys, oh, it's 9.30. I haven't had coffee yet. I'm just trying to remind myself I'm just totally dependent upon the Spirit. Can you pray for me? Like, what are you doing? One, stop being your own publicity agent. And two, your fasting is not intended to get attention from others. It's intended for you to be attentive to God. It's intended for you to be attentive to God. Isaiah 58 gives us one of the, the greatest clarities on why he would call us to fast and how you can think about and consider, is your fasting hypocritical? Isaiah 58, God is crying out against Israel and he is condemning uh, the kind of fasting that's really going on by the Pharisees. A fasting that is for self-righteousness, for self-exaltation, a fasting that is for them and not for God. Fasting to be seen by others and fasting for their own self-righteousness. Look with me at Isaiah 58, starting at verse 1. 
Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sin. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. What's going on? God is crying out to Isaiah, and he says, Cry out to my people. Tell my people of their transgression. Call them to repentance. Declare to them their sin. And what kind of people are they? Yet they are people who seek me daily. They are people who delight to know my ways. As though they were a nation that did righteousness. And did not forsake the judgment of God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near. And then this is the question of the people. As Isaiah is declaring this, what are the thoughts of the people? Verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I chose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not the fast that I chose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and to bring the homeless and poor into your house, when you see the naked and cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking wickedness, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. What do we see here in Isaiah 1, in verses 1 through 5? They seek him daily. They delight to know him. And it says, as if they did righteous. They delight to draw near. Why? They want to display their righteous deeds to God. It's for their own pleasure. For their own mental health. For their own desire. For their own self-confidence for their own feelings, to try to stop what they see as their afflictions. Why do they draw near to him? For them. For their own pleasure, their own desires. They don't draw near because he is praiseworthy. They don't draw near because he is glorious. They don't draw near because he deserves honor. 
They don't draw near because he is just and his judgments are true. And how do we know that? Because they ignore his judgments. This is the people of Israel at this time were living in such a way that it was not loving their brother. It says they were not releasing the bonds. They were not doing what he had commanded. They're probably not practicing in Israel. The law would be every seven years, every slave in Israel is set free. They're not taking care of what God has commanded. They're not caring for those in Israel. Uh, They are oppressing the poor for their own good. They're taking advantage. They're using their wealth for their own pleasure, and they are keeping a religious practice that makes them feel holy. I do this. Why isn't God giving me what I want then? They come before God and they say, look at all we're doing for you. Why don't you give us what we want? It's interesting. They humble themselves as it suits them. Why? Because they want to build themselves up. They want theirs. Their religious practice is a farce. They run to God when they're not satisfied with their temporal life, but they have no care for what the eternal God has commanded. And what does he tell them? He tells them, repent. Repent. Verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chose to loose the bonds, to undo the straps, to let the oppressed go free? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless into your house when you see the naked and cover him and not to hide yourself? Then shall light break forth like the dawn. Healing will be spread over you. Righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your God. And then you shall call on the Lord and answer, he shall. And you could cry and he will say, here I am. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places. Make your bones strong. You should be like a watered garden. What are they to do? They are to repent. They're to repent of pretending that they love God with all their heart. Because they only love God with their fast. They only love God with their sacrifice. They only love God in such a way that they're saying, God, you owe me now. I did what I'm supposed to do. In modern terms, I I think this is people that when you pray, when you think about your life, when you think when things are going wrong and and you feel in despair, how do you bargain with God? Do you humbly plead with him to give you endurance, to trust him? Do you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and remember that all of your trials are temporary, they are necessary, they are for the glory of God? And they draw you to Christ? Or do you go, God, how could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? Do you know how much I give up? Do you know what I could be doing on Sundays? And I go to church. God, I could be having fun. Instead, I listen to Jake preach for an hour. You think I do that because I love it? (sighs) Come on. God, I give up so much. I tithe, I offer. I care for people. I do everything I'm supposed to do. And you don't even recognize me. Has your heart not been there? Have you not pleaded with God in such a prideful, self-righteous way? 
as though he owed you? That you were fasting because he owed you something. And yet the one commanded fast is the day to remind you there is nothing you can do to repay God. You must be atoned for. There ought not to be hypocrisy in our religious action. Again, that does not mean we don't take religious action. It doesn't mean that we aren't faithful. What he's crying out here is you are doing the normal things of the faith and you are thinking that that ought to earn you some high place with God, but you are ignoring the very commands. Right? How do you solve that problem? You just start fasting, right? Okay, I'm going to start fasting. I'm going to fast two days a week. Then I'll be really holy. Then I'll really work this out. No. It's not by choosing religious practice in certain times to separate yourself, to make yourself feel holy and spiritual. That is the way of the world. You have to find this disconnect from earth to connect to the spiritual. You have to find some way to make your body move into the divine and all kinds of other nonsense that is said. But he says you need to recognize the divine exists over all things. He's the creator of the whole world. And surrender your whole life to him. It is not about your occasional religious action. Even that is for your good. He says, what is the fast that I have commanded? The fast I have commanded is to humble you and to remind you of your need for him, to obey him, to plead for him and with him, to be about him. The disciples of John and the Pharisees come and they declare a fast, at least the Pharisees, that is self-righteous and confused, that is demanding on God that goes to God and declares their righteousness and why God should accept them. And Jesus says there is no place for that. The gospel is new and something new has come. Look with me at these last two verses in verse 21 and 22 as Jesus gives an illustration for them of the exclusivity of the all-sufficient Christ. Why their old ways will no longer work. Why they can no longer depend upon their own righteousness, their own pursuit. We have a clear illustration here uh, from from God, and and praise God, he describes it because you might not be familiar with wineskins. Even if you make wine currently, I really doubt you do it in in an animal skin. Probably have a bottle with a little filter on top that lets air out because you don't want to burst that bottle. But in the ancient world, as they were making wine or alcohol, they would put it in skins and they would put new wine that's going to ferment and expand in new skins because that skin will be flexible. It will expand. As the wine is fermenting, the bag will stretch and it will allow it to. If you were to do it in an old wine skin that had been stretched previously and moved back and forth, it could carry a liquid. But if you put wine in that and filled it up, that skin has already been expanded and stretched and the skin is tight. It's no longer uh, elastic in nature. So you fill it, now it's going to expand and it's going to tear and rip. And now your wine will be all over the ground. So he says this new wine does not work in old wineskins. These things cannot mix like water and oil. And he gives an illustration of cloth. He says if it's cloth that is already worn, already washed, already shrunk, you cannot sew new cloth onto it 
or what's going to happen. You'll stitch it nice and tight all the way around and it will be there and look beautiful until you wash it and the new cloth shrinks and the old cloth can't shrink anymore and now it's going to tear everything off and it's going to look even worse or better, depends how you like your jeans. But you know what's going to be the result. It's going to rip a hole in the fabric. Jesus is making a very clear and straightforward illustration. He's saying what Christ has brought will not blend with anything prior. Christ is doing something new. The gospel is good news like no good news that has ever come before. The self-righteous acts of the Pharisees will not make them right before God. Only the Messiah can. So as the author of Hebrews writes, and he said, the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin. It could never make it right. It only pointed to something else. In Colossians, we see that it is a shadow of things to come. What was old was pointing toward what would come, and what would come is Christ. These things cannot blend. They cannot mix. There is no earned righteousness in Christ. There is no system in which you can earn righteousness before God because the gospel is something completely new, completely transformed. To follow Christ, you must turn from everything. You must repent of everything. You must count everything as loss for Christ. And you will spend your life wrestling through the many things that you've followed, the many things that you've known, the many things that you've lived, the many things that are good, and you've idolized them, and surrender them to Christ. And we have two examples here of how that could happen. For the Pharisees, they would have to completely repent of all their self-righteousness, right? They would have to say, we no longer are the Pharisees. We are no longer those separated by ourselves. We are saints separated in Christ. They would have to live like Paul writes in Philippians, that he counts everything before a loss that he might have Christ. But what about the disciples of John? It's a really interesting case to me because it was not wrong for them to follow John, right? John is the forerunner. John is proclaiming Christ. Where did the disciples of John go wrong? They only listened to John partially. They didn't hear John when he said, Follow after him. They leaned on their human understanding. Maybe even like John. Remember, as John's in prison, we'll see at one point he cries out and goes, go and ask Jesus if he is the one. After John's already declared it, he's at his lowest and confused. And he says, go and make sure. If I'm going to die, I want to I know. And like John, they decided to follow after a good thing, a teacher, John, and make him a God thing. They're the disciples of John. It's what John says. Whatever John says, that's what's true. And so they thought, there's no way I could follow this Jesus because he's not John. They've made an idol in their mind. The disciples of John were caught up with their mentor and not even hearing him say what is greater. And it's interesting to me, so many of us do this with theologians. We choose a theologian and we say what they say goes. But we don't hear everything that theologian says. 
Uh, very few people that would call themselves Calvinists have read through the entire Institutes of Calvin and all of his writings and everything he said. None of them that call themselves Calvinists today live with him, because he did, except not, because he's with Jesus. But they say, oh, we define ourselves by this. And maybe you think like, oh, no, I would never do that, but you call yourself something else. I use Calvinist because I think that's the closest to home for us. But maybe it's Chuck, right? Maybe it was closer to home. Maybe like me, your, your parents got saved partly because of Chuck Smith preaching the gospel to a whole bunch of hippies in Orange County. Praise God. But can you follow Chuck? For a little while. Not anymore. He dead. Right? Hopefully you follow Chuck into eternity. But you can't let Chuck decide your eternity because he is not the eternal God. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's closer to home. There are people that you've known, people that you have followed, things that they have said, things that they taught. There are things that are good, and you make them God things. Philosophies and desires, psychology degrees, all kinds of things in your life. Maybe it's the way your parents functioned or the way that people close to you function. You take those things and you say, these are God things. We've got to hold on to these. And then one day you realize, I've been fasting twice a week for my whole life. And there's only one command in the Old Testament. Well, to them it wouldn't be the Old Testament. There's only one command from God to fast on the Day of Atonement. Maybe I missed the point. Maybe I made this something it wasn't. What do we do? We turn to him. You're familiar, John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's exclusive. There is no other path to Christ. You cannot blend Christ with modern psychology. You cannot blend Christ with Hinduism or Muslim or Catholicism. You cannot blend Christ with other things and say, well, we're really all just the same. We're all doing the same things. We all have religious practice that we think will make us right before God, and so we practice those things. And Jesus says here, no, your religious practice has nothing to do with your righteousness. Your religious practice is merely reminding you you're dependent upon Him because He is righteous. Why do you come to church on a Sunday? Because you need to depend on the people of God, like food. Because God has prepared the people of God for you to depend on. They remind you to depend and to trust on Him. If we have been scattered in the world and tossed to and fro, I can't list all of the things that would guide our thoughts and would direct us, because you've lived a life apart. You've lived a life all over the well, maybe not all over the world, maybe just here in Menifee. But you hear and you have teachers and things from everywhere. And what do you do? Well, the normal answers, you go to the Word of God. You depend on the Word of God. When you have things you're holding on to and you realize, maybe this isn't what I need to hold on to. You plead with God. You, you study His Word. Praise God, you're given tools to do that. You go back. You wrestle through. You trust on the gifts of God, right? God is a God who gives gifts. And it is important to depend upon the gifts of God. 
And so what do you do if you have found yourself tossed to and fro by the world and you don't know? So what do we do? Do we fast? Do we not fast? How do I get holy before God? The answer is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. How do you get stabilized in that truth and stop getting tossed to and fro in the world? Praise God, we have a passage that tells us exactly that. What is it that stabilizes Christians? Look with me at Ephesians 4, 10 through 16. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. Who is he who descended? Christ who came incarnate is also Christ who ascended. Christ who rose from the dead and ascended to God. Jesus Christ, the only one who came to earth, died and rose again for eternity. Not temporarily, for eternity. Declared by his ascension. He didn't stay on earth to wait to die again. No, he was risen and forever will be at the hand of the Father. He ascended. And what did he do as he ascended? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers. He gave the church leadership. He gave the apostles and the prophets the word of God. He gave evangelists to declare the message. And he gave shepherds and teachers to lead the church. So that we would all depend on them like we do Jesus? No, because they will die. What is the purpose of shepherds, teachers? What do we do with men like John or Chuck? What is their purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we unite together. We are built in ministry together. We function together. The church is not a religious practice you come to in order to make yourself righteous with God. It is a people that you are brought together with to be made into the righteousness of God in what Christ has done. Verse 14, So that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What will you do? What religious practice is going to make you right before God? What can you sacrifice? What, what can you work out? What can you do in your life so that when you go to God, you can pray and say, you've got to give me what I want because I did this? Nothing. There's absolutely nothing. And if you approach God in that way, you will receive the same. Nothing. But if you listen to him, if you have heard what he says, and that the only hope is in him who has ascended, you will recognize that he has given gifts to his people. The gift of his word under the prophets and the apostles. The gift of care for the church and elders. And the gift of the church that is a body that ministers together, that functions together, that when each part works as it was equipped, as it's been gifted in Christ, tosses, or rather, stops itself from being tossed to and fro 
by every wind of doctrine, everything that's said, every YouTube video, every Instagram post, every book you've read, every conversation you had, but solidifies the church where? As they speak the truth in love. Christian, we have to take the religious practices in which God has given us, the religious gifts that he has given us, and not abuse them and look at them as some some way that we can put money in the slot machine to get what we want from God. But as a gift from him to remind us of our only dependence, him. We cannot take the old ways of the world, the old things of Judaism, the old things of life, the old things that we knew that we once depended on and say, well, I can just bring this to Christ and this will work. It worked over here, it'll work here. The things of earth are not like the things of Christ. They do not mix. We must depend fully upon him. This morning we're going to participate together in communion, which is a religious act for the purpose of remembering the grace of God. It's interesting that the Day of Atonement would be a fast and communion would be a feast. That we are now reminded of the wholeness and the fullness of Christ, not by fasting uh, because of the atonement, but by remembering the atonement in the body that was given. So I'm going to pray. Daniel is going to lead us in communion uh, and we are going to sing and worship God. But this morning, I want to remind you particularly, as we take communion... Don't let it be as the Pharisees. Don't be those who live a life that is unrighteous all week. Living in knowing, ignoring the commands of God and thinking, oh, if I could just get here today and say a quick prayer and eat a little cracker and drink a little juice, then I'll be right with God. Now, as we remind you every week, communion is not a means of being made right with God. It is a means of being reminded how you have been made right with God. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful and good. We thank you, Lord, that we can depend upon you for all things. I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Uh, Father, that you would help us to, to decipher our hearts. Lord, as uh, you are good and kind and making it not so simple that we just need to do the right things and then we'll be fine. But you have given us ways to wrestle with our heart to be shaped and strengthened by your word and by your body, by your spirit. I pray you would help us not to be those who take religious acts and exalt ourselves over others by them, but that we would take the gifts that you have given, humble ourselves in them, and seek to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.